0: Hello and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. dot org. I am Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, dot org, a nonprofit organization providing community education and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Our podcasts are made possible thanks to our sponsors. Store my tumor. Your preserved tumor contains the most important information about your cancer. Stormy Tumor provides live tumor preservation and coordination of advanced diagnostics and personalized immunotherapies. Thank you so much for supporting us. Hello, my friends. I'm so happy to be connecting with you this week on Breast Cancer Conversations. I'm your host, Laura Carfing. and if you're joining us for the first time, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and receive notifications each time we come out with a new episode.
1: To all of you who tune in every week, welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. Molecular breast imaging is a little bit different. We acquire the images in the same plane, so in the horizontal plane and at a 45 degree. Molecular breast imaging, the way that this works is we inject you with a radioactive material called technetium. The detectors that we use are much better than the way they used to be, and that's really why this is such a great modality. The most important thing is to just get this information out to everybody. Welcome to the conversation.
0: I have two guests here tonight for my listeners. I'm so excited that you guys are joining us today. We have Leslie Yerger and you're calling in from the Chicagoland area. That's right. Excellent. Mm -hmm. So glad to have you. And you have a great story because we overlapped through our breast cancer diagnoses and I think immediately, like you submitted a blog for us and you were telling us how you walked 500 miles and what you were raising money for. And so I'm going to kind of leave the cliffhanger there for our listeners and they'll have to kind of stay tuned to hear a little bit more about that. And you spearheaded um, this partnership and collaboration that we are able to bring Dr. Ha on the show today as well, which I'm also very excited to have because you know, as survivingbreastcancer.org as a nonprofit, as we are growing, we definitely re- rely on our community members to say, hey, here's a great topic, or here's something that I'm interested in knowing more about, or here's something I think we need to push out to the community, and how we can use our own networks to kind of bring in these amazing guests onto our show. So Dr. Ha, I'm very grateful and thankful that you have the time to spend with our community today. So thank you for joining us as well. Well, thanks for having me. Yes.
1: And you are calling in from New York, correct? Correct. Correct. I am actually the Director of Radiology and Women's Imaging at Mercy Medical Center in Rockville Center, New York. We are in Nassau County. Um, And our hospital is part of a larger network. We're part of the uh, Catholic Health uh, System of Long Island. Um, Currently, I am running a molecular breast imaging program. We are the only molecular breast imaging program in New York State.
0: Leslie, I would love for you to kind of take us back to maybe a little bit of how you and I overlapped in the blog that you shared. Because if you are listening to our podcast and haven't checked out our website, we do publish blogs every week. And sometimes there are blogs that I write as well as blogs that our contributors from our community submit as well. So it's a really great way to give people kind of that overarching view of like, what is breast cancer, right? We know that no one's diagnosis is exactly the same and same with people's experiences. So I love being able to represent um, kind of that gamut. Um, Yeah, so
2: it was back in November 2017. And I was doing just, you know, regular healthcare checkup things. And one of the things that my doctor suggested that I do is to get a um, baseline bone density scan since I was newly postmenopausal, um just to sort of check uh, have something to check against and see if you're losing bone you know later on in your life if you don't have a baseline then there's, there's really no way to know so that came back with suspicious things in it um and mind you just a couple months before that i had had a um mammogram and an ultrasound that came back all clarifying you know Wow. Yeah. Uh, and so we began to investigate what was happening in the the bones um, and got to the stage of a bone biopsy and found out that it was stage four um, lobular breast cancer. And so lobular is a sneaky type of breast cancer and that it's it's harder to see in the technologies that we're currently using. Um, And so you can understand how confusing that was Um, to get that diagnosis. And so I went to the Mayo Clinic um, for a second opinion and the diagnosis was certainly confirmed, but through my time at the Mayo Clinic, um, I began to learn about this new breast cancer screening called molecular breast imaging that finds many, many more breast cancers in women with dense breasts, which I have. So I became interested in that technology and hoping to get the word out to more people about it, since you know there's a good chance it could have found mine if had it been available. You know, there's no way to know that for sure. Um, but what I do know is that there are a fair amount of breast cancer cancers not being found right now through the technologies that we're currently currently using as standard. And so that's kind of become um, the job that I've given myself as a way to give back um, to other people.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that story sure. and. I'm just curious if you don't mind sharing. You know, I think when we think about different diagnostics, I don't necessarily associate a bone density scan with finding cancer, right? Like that's not necessarily right. one of the normal modalities. And I hear these stories a lot where people are going in for one ailment, they get a CT scan or they get an X-ray and something looks suspicious and then immediately it escalates into something else. Um, you know, I my experience prior to breast cancer Has been like just going for like routine one-year checkups. I'd never broken a bone, I never had any problems, I consider myself very healthy. So the more that I'm talking and hearing women's stories about how they're discovering their cancers and discovering it at a very late stage as well, um, is very shocking. And so, you know, I every time I go to the doctors now too, or someone's telling me, oh, don't worry, I'm just going in for X, Y, and Z test, my heart immediately skips a beat because you know, we're discovering things all the time about our bodies. Can I also ask? Um, you know, when they did the bone biopsy, did they know right away that it was breast cancer? No, not at all. It actually looked like
2: multiple myeloma um, in in the um, CT scan and the and the X rays. So that's kind of what we were fishing for. Um, even though there was a blood test and a urine test that came back negative, so we were kind of everybody was kind of confused as to what it was at that point. So no, we didn't particularly weren't looking for breast cancer, especially since, you know, we just had a mammogram and an ultrasound and that came back fine. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know if my story is, is, you know, a a common story, but there are cancers that being are being found later than they should be. So, even a stage one or zero is better than a three, <laughs> right? Now, regardless of whether you got you got to four or not, like I did. So, so I think that's really the the bigger story here is hopefully there are ways that we can move to that we can find breast cancers a lot earlier than we are now. Exactly. So that's kind of what I've dedicated my working life to now.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. So, I would love to just like jump right in. I think we have um you know two great survivors here on the call with very different experiences of how they found their diagnosis myself and you, Leslie and dr Ha and um, you know without just jumping right into like the fun and exciting question of what is molecular breast imaging, I would like to kind of give our listeners an overview of how complex radiology actually is in terms of breast health. Um, I'm still learning myself too, without like the medical background, you know, I go in and I have a mammography um, screening and, you know, it really took me a long time to understand what the standard of care is versus going in for a diagnostic. So because of my age, when I, you know, pushed my primary care doctor to write a prescription for me to be able to go and get a mammogram at 34, you know, they did all sorts of pictures, right, in different different angles, and I think a lot more than just, you know, a, what, like two on each side or four on each side or whatever the hospital's practice typically is. So I'm going around talking about all these images that I'm getting thinking that's normal, not understanding that this was above and beyond because it was a diagnostic process, and it quickly moved to an ultrasound as well because of the dense tissue. And um, such so as like one example, I know in our breast cancer community as well, we talk a lot about... um you know, being able to advocate for 3D mammography or contrast-enhanced mammography, um, MRIs. So within the field of radiology, there's so many options and technologies available. Would, I would love to hear your opinion on you know just a big-picture overview of all of these options and then utilizing that maybe as an introduction for molecular
1: breast imaging. Okay, so kind of what you alluded to, there's two different types of of mammograms, right? There is a screening mammogram and the way that we screen is you get two views of each breast, all right? And that was really just basically, that was all we did for screening. But recently with all the literature that's coming out about dense breasts, we've quickly realized that just the two views of each breast is not sufficient for screening everybody, right? So we are really quickly learning that we should be moving toward customized screening programs. And that's actually what we've done at Mercy. Um, That's the program that we've developed, right? So what happens is when you come in and you have no complaints whatsoever, right? This is for people who have no complaints and they were just looking for breast cancer to see if anything is popping up. The first thing that'll happen is we have you answer these questions and everybody hates answering the questions because they're like, why are you being so nosy? But there actually is a reason because What I do with those questions, and I look at every single questionnaire, we input the questionnaires into a program that will calculate what your five-year risk is and what your lifetime risk of developing breast cancer is, okay? So that's the first part. That's the first thing. As soon as you walk in, that's what we're doing. And then the next thing that happens is we take the pictures, right? We take the basic pictures. Once those basic pictures are taken, we actually have a software um, called Volpara and Volpara, what Volpara does is it will measure what your breast density is. So it's not me looking at the picture and saying, oh, I think this one looks dense, or oh, I think this one looks fatty. It actually measures percentage-wise what your breast density is. And that's really important because that means that's something that's replicable. And whether I do it or somebody else does it, like that density is pretty much going to be the density that you have, right? So once I determine that you have dense breasts, Yes, I'm still screening you, right? But you now you become a dense breast screening for me, okay? And then the dense what that means is we will do your four views, but I'll also let you know, listen, you have dense breasts, and this study alone may not be sufficient. We need to have some kind of supplemental screening for you in the form of ultrasound most commonly, but because we have molecular breast imaging, that's another layer. So you could have, you should have your screening mammogram plus an ultrasound or molecular breast imaging. Okay? So that's that's basically the screening program that we have. Let's say that you also have a high risk for developing breast cancer because you've had multiple biopsies or you know there's there's things that are involved that you're like how does that have anything to do with what my risk would be but it's it you know it matters when you got your period. You know, when you had your first child. It's mm-hmm. all these things that you know, family history, right? First degree fa- relatives or more distant relatives, um, history of g- certain GYN cancers. So we look at all of those things. And if you have a, an increased risk, as well as having the dense breast, I may recommend at that point that you add a layer of more protection and possibly get an MRI as well as an MBI. All right. So that's where you know. So that's really the basics. Um, one of the questions I often get asked is, well, when should I start screening for breast cancer? and that's really important also. So right now there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of controversy as to what the starting age should be. But I because I'm a radiologist, we go by what the American College of Radiology recommend and that's age 40. Okay. With the understanding that if you have a strong family history or if you have a first degree relative who has breast cancer, all right, we like to start screening you 10 years prior to the time that they were diagnosed. Mm. With the understanding that we won't screen you before you're like 25. Okay. Okay. So that's really an important bit of information, right? Because everybody, you know, a lot of people say, well, I'm only 32 or I'm only 35. And, you know, they they don't think that I should be screened for breast cancer. But we find out that, you know what, you had a sister who was diagnosed when she was 40. Okay. So technically, we could have started screening you at 30. Or if you had a mother who was diagnosed at age 45. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those are all little things. So that's really So that's that's step one. Step one is figuring out what your screening program is going to be and when we're going to start screening you. And then we have all these tools that we can use to figure out how we're going to screen you. And what you were saying is so molecular breast imaging is yet just another tool. It's the latest thing that we have. We are the only ones in New York who have it. Um, It was very it was, you know, the the unit that we have was supposed to go to Johns Hopkins, actually. And somehow we wound up getting it because there was like a little glitch there, I guess. The nice thing about molecular breast imaging really is that if you have a negative, if your molecular breast imaging is negative, so there's nothing on the molecular breast imaging. There's like a ninety nine point six or seven percent chance that you do not have breast cancer at the time that we're imaging you. Wow. So more than anything, I feel like that is really like such a relief for so many people so many women, especially when they have dense breasts, especially when we know that you have like a gazillion cysts and, you know, little complex cysts and ducts and things like that. But, you know, when you get that negative MBI, we can say, you know what, these things are probably all benign. There's a 99, greater than 99% chance that you're good.
0: That's incredible. So, you yeah. know, if I'm understanding this correctly, would that actually decrease the number of biopsies then that you would need to perform?
1: Yes. So it could potentially decrease the number of unnecessary biopsies that you would need.
0: Excellent. Mm-hmm. For me, that was like yeah, the most painful part. For, uh, Dr. Ha, on yes. that. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: other modalities like um, the other ones that you mentioned, ultrasound mm-hmm. or, or something, um, if those come back negative, then what are the chances that you would? not have breast or that you would have breast cancer does that
1: you know what I'm saying what's the same reference? um if you have a negative you mean if you have a negative mammogram Yeah,
0: if you have a negative
1: okay, so, all right so let let's put it this way ultrasound I, I have some I have some interesting numbers okay, okay. so let's say that I screen1,000 women all right and I use what they were supposed to use the mammogram but we're not even using the the 2D, 3D combo, not the Tomo, but the regular mammogram, right? If you use a regular mammogram, we will find about three breast cancers per thousand women on average. Okay. Okay. When we add the Tomo, the 2D, 3D to it, we add about 1.2 more people. So four, a little more than four people per thousand now. Okay. Okay. So when we add molecular breast imaging, we add approximately eight to nine more women, per thousand, all right? So that's, so we started off with three, and if you wanna add eight or nine to that, right, that's about, that's actually almost a 400% increase in the detection rate, right? Yeah. Um, Ultrasound alone, so if we do the mammogram plus the ultrasound, we will add 3.2 more. So instead of having three, we'll get about six per thousand.
2: Okay.
1: All right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's, you know, that's useful information. I think it is useful information. Yeah, it's significant. If we do an MRI, we actually get more, believe it or not. So I don't want to knock MRI. We do an MRI, there's almost 15 more that we're going to get as okay. opposed to the eight or nine. But why don't we just do MRI on everybody, right? At that point. Well, it turns out that with the MRI, um, you know, all the ones that we're going to be biopsying because we think these things are positive, right? Uh, the false positive rate. So there's a t- almost a 25% chance that the one that we're going to do is ne- is not breast cancer. Okay. Whereas with MBI, there is about a six to six six and a half to eight percent chance that it's not going to be cancer. So much much less. Okay. Right. Thank you.
2: That that makes sense. hmm
1: Yeah. I do think those are very significant. Yeah, And also your story was interesting that you said that you had the lobular, right? So Mm -hmm. when I first, when we first got this machine a few years ago, one of my first patients that I had, um, I worked very closely with several of the breast surgeons and he called me, he said, I want to send somebody over to your office. He's like, can you see her, you know, and can you do that MBI thing that you just got? And I was like, yeah, we we can, you know, get Ready. I said, we'll schedule her for doing this. And basically her complaint was that she felt that she had heaviness in one breast. One breast felt heavier than the other. And she went to several other, you know, radiology centers and basically she had mammograms and they told her everything was fine. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. she was convinced that she had something. So she went to the breast surgeon and he said, you know what? He goes, She's right. He goes, one breast feels heavier than the other. And maybe it's just that it's asymmetric, but he said, you know, and it looks like there's just more tissue on one side. Maybe he said, could you do this thing? We did it. That entire breast was so hot, yeah. you know, and when we saw that, I said, let's now go back and review the mammogram and do a targeted ultrasound of the area that, that looks hot, but it's the whole breast pretty much, right? Wow. And when we did it, I said, you know, it's not a mass it's just a shadowy area it's like these shadowy areas and i said okay we're going to biopsy these shadowy areas and it became invasive lobular
2: right yeah
1: can you explain to
2: the people listening why that show why lobular would show up on an mbi and not one not an ultrasound or or a mammogram
1: right it lobular is very tricky as you alluded to because lobular grows in sheets Okay so when we do a mammogram right we're looking at think something in one plane we look at it like straight on and then we look at it at an angle right so because it's growing in sheets if if you're catching it in the if like in, in the plane that it's growing in right it's mm-hmm. going to look like thin nothing you're not going to see it it's only when you tilt it and put it into certain planes mm-hmm. that you may see something and because we're radiologists we always think you have to see it in two planes to actually think that it's real Mm. so that's what you want you want to see things in two planes right Mm -hmm. but lobular is the one that you know is tricky like that right right
0: what percentage I'm not sure if you know this information um i mean to catch you off guard either do you know what percentage of women either you Dr. Ha or Leslie um have lobular breast cancer I don't know offhand it's not one of the more common
2: forms though um, I'm going to say um, I've read 10% and I've read 10 to 15%. So I think it's uh-huh. somewhere there. Um, yeah. The ductile is certainly much. Right, that's, that, that's the one that forms a lump and that's what we are told to feel for. You know, When we talk about these you know, manual exams or self-exam. Yeah. But lobular does not form a lump. Usually.
1: Yeah. Usually Yes, you
2: have to be you have to really know what you're doing in order to be able to feel it.
1: And it's also amazing to me how many times, you know, I give talks at the local high schools and, um, you know, you you ask women, it's like, do you do your self exam? And they're basically like, yeah, we kind of do it, but we don't know. It's like nobody's ever gone over it with us to see what it is exactly that we're feeling for um so i do a little thing where i let them feel the tip of their nose and then i let them feel like the little clavicle bone here and i say things that are fixed like this clavicle bone here doesn't move right and it feels very hard as opposed to like the tip of your nose that feels a little rubbery the rubbery things usually are okay it's when you start feeling things that are hard and that they kind of don't want to move and you you know you can't move them around that's really when you have to be more worried and they said wow they said, we never you know we've never heard that and uh You know, then you hear about like, oh, you should be going in a circle to figure out, you know, feel every piece. I I don't believe in that either. I think that the whole idea is to make sure that you're palpating the entire breast, And if it means that you're going up and down and sideways to sideways, you know, do it in the shower, use soap so that it's a little slippery so you really actually can feel things. The most important thing is that you do it on a regular basis so that you will be able to detect any interval change. So you really have a good idea of what your breast feels like. I think I jumped the gun a little bit. So I I actually, you know, maybe people may not know what molecular breast imaging actually is, right? So you know, most people know what a mammogram is, right? So a mammogram, it's an x-ray. It's an x-ray of your breast. And the way that we acquire these images are, um, we squeeze the breast along the horizon. So from top to bottom, all right? And it, it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty decent compression. It's about 20 pounds or so, and people don't like it, right? And then we take the x-ray, and we look at those images. And then we also take another one called a medial lateral oblique, which is at a 45-degree angle, and it's compressed this way, and we t- take those images. And again, it's an x-ray. Molecular breast imaging is a little bit different. We acquire the images in the same plane, so in the horizontal plane and at a 45-degree Molecular breast imaging, the way that this works is we inject you with a radioactive material called technetium. And you know, as soon as I say that, people kind of freak out a little bit, they say, oh my God, you're injecting me with radiation. But the fact is that it's a very, very low dose it's extremely safe. The dose that we use is the same dose that you get for if you were to have a cardiac stress test, right? But they not the it's the the resting portion of it, which is like the first portion, very, very small dose. Um, if you want to have an idea of what exactly is this amount of radiation, it is the background radiation of living in the united most parts of the United States for the course of an entire year. so it's it's not that much. It's very small, you know, that we, if I were sitting next to you right now, right, you would be receiving radiation from me. People don't realize that, but that's the way it is, right? So it's just like, it's a one year's worth of background radiation, it's very small. Um, and in terms of the safety of technetium, it's been around forever. It's what we use for cardiac stress tests. It, you know, we inject it and then it goes away. You You basically pass it out of your body. It's not something that stays in there. The detectors that we use are, much better than the way they used to be. And that's really why this is such a great modality. Now, in the past, the detectors weren't so sensitive. So you would have to use so much technetium that it really, you know, outweighed the benefits. And now we can use a very small dose because the detectors are so much better. And, you know, they're always working on improving even more. What exactly are they
0: um, detecting? Is it like the activity of the cells or the heat or what's the...
1: It's actually gamma rays, believe it or not. Okay. It's a gamma camera, you know. So what what it does is, things that are active, things tissues that's active, tissue that's dividing more rapidly, like cancer, right, will take up the radi- radioactive material more than the regular normal tissue, and that's how we are able to detect what area is more is hotter, let's say, right. But the problem is that women who are before premenstrual, I mean, premenopausal, premenopausal women, depending on where they're in their cycle, can have active tissue. And you know that because we've all experienced it, right? Right. You, we all know what, you know, we all knew when we were going to get our periods because everybody was knocking into our breast, because they were engorged and they were sensitive. So same thing. So we try not to image you during that period. We try to image you when your breast is a little quieter. If you're postmenopausal, it's not, it's not an issue.
0: Wonderful.
1: Can you uh-huh. explain what it's like to get the test? So uh, the way that we do it is you come into a room, and we sit you in a chair, if you want to stand, you can. And basically, as I said, it's light compression, okay, it's about 10 pounds of compression. And it really is just compression to hold the breast in place so that it doesn't slip around that we can acquire these images. And it takes about seven minutes per image. So we do two CCs and two MLOs. So that's about 28 minutes. Um, oftentimes, we'll give you a warm blanket so that it will help the circulation. It helps um, you make it some aromatherapy. And basically, we'll put you in there with two televisions so you could watch um, the a- HSN network while you're getting your study. And then that's really pretty much it. It's pretty easy. Um, when you come in, obviously, we will inject you with this. Um, the technician with Tiny Little Needle. Okay. Mm-hmm. And was that, that was your experience? Um, I never got one. Oh, you never got one? Okay. No, no.
2: I went to the Mayo Clinic and, you know, they, they, well, we were already on the, you know, right, right, you were, yeah. track. So, right, right. Yeah. You know, the it, yeah. I wasn't in a screening program there. It mm-hmm. was more for. Right,
1: You're already there for. You were diagnosed. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why I was interested to ask you that because, mm-hmm. um, you know.
1: Anytime you want to come and visit us.
2: Oh, yeah. You're more than
1: welcome. I'd like to show it to you. Yeah, that would be great.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Nice. Yeah, and I haven't heard of this until, Leslie, you started telling me all about it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there's, like, more technology and so much to keep up on. So this is really great to be able to kind of take a deeper dive into exactly what the MBI is and what people can expect when they're going through a screening. You mentioned that your clinic is the only one in the state of New York that offers this type of screening. And this type of study for for people. Um, How widespread, or I guess in this case, like not widespread, is this technology?
1: There really aren't that many units. I think that there are maybe 50 units throughout the country right now, or something like that, maybe less. Um, You know, we run into several little hiccups, so to speak. Um, The main issue being that the insurance companies don't want to reimburse it. you know, they will reimburse, and there are certain insurance companies that actually always reimburse. And, you know, we keep a little chart together of who are the ones who always say yes, and who are the ones who almost always say no. Um, You know, uh, if you have Medicare, Medicare, automatically, everybody gets approved. A lot of these other places, they'll approve you if you have the doctor call in, but that can be a problem because, you know, doc, you have to call, they put you on the phone and you're literally on hold for about half an hour. And so, you know, there's really just isn't enough manpower to do that, I guess. Um, we have a, a, a very great, we have a good program because we work with the surgeon and he actually has a navigator who gets on the phone. And will say this is Dr. So-and-so's office and she'll stay on hold until somebody comes, at which point he'll stop doing what he's doing and he gets on the phone and he tells them <clears> what's going on. And almost, you know, we're very good at getting the approval. Yeah. So
0: and that's yeah. really good. I remember the first time that, not gonna, first and only time that I got a letter from my insurance company telling me I was not approved for a particular chemotherapy drug, and I was livid because you know yeah. you put so much trust in your oncology team that you know this is going to be part of like that plan. And you know, I remember going in for my like weekly checkups, and I brought in my paperwork, and he's like, "Oh, don't worry, we called them; we're it's taken care of. You can ignore that letter." But you're right; it's, there's a lot of behind the scenes administrative, you know, back and forth and man hours that you're mentioning that go uh-huh. into a lot of this treatment and an access and access with regards to where this technology
1: is, and then also access in terms of finance. All right. So the, I think so insurance surely certainly is one of the main issues that we have but i think that it's even more multifaceted in some ways of why this technology isn't being adopted so quickly um you know if you think about it, i think part of it it's it's everybody has a little role to play let's say you know from the radiology point of view this is the people who are doing the mammograms usually all they do is mammogram i'm a little bit different because i do other modalities i um i actually do neuroradiology also which means that i'm very comfortable looking at cts and at mris and you know i'm not i like doing other modalities so i do the mammograms i do the breast mrs i do ultrasound and when this came up i said sure it's like i can definitely do this but they were like but it's nuclear medicine and you know people who do mama don't want to learn not only a new modality but it's a completely new type of imaging it's not like a different type of x-ray it's a t- completely different you know modality right it's not like it's an x-ray and we're doing a different type of view right so i think that really so we get it's hard it's it's going to take a lot of education to let people know yes this is a nuclear medicine study but really it's breast imaging mm-hmm. so don't think of it as a different modality think of it as a multi modality approach to a certain problem and the problem is breast cancer screening
0: yes i love that multi modality i use interdisciplinary all the time but i'm going to start using multi modality that's oh. a great one
1: yeah So I think that's the best, you know, we have to use every tool that we have.
0: Yes. Um. So, um, I don't know if you've had this experience. Um, and I know that there's a lot of legislation still trying to get passed to require various states in the United States to give women a letter if they do have dense tissue and, you know, it still blows my mind that this isn't like a requirement across all of the states. But I know in terms of like the advocacy st- sector for breast cancer, you know, there's a lot of momentum yeah. to try and get this law passed in all 50 states. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think last time I was reading a statistic, it was at 38. I don't know since like the last couple of months if it went up, hopefully it did. Mm-hmm. Um, but about 38 states from the last time I was reading about it um, were required by law for the radiologists team to give some sort of letter and notify the patient that they have dense tissue. What continues to baffle me, and again, an area for advocacy that we're trying to just make aware and and act on, is that there's not a standard either of what degree this letter has to inform the patient about what their options are right? So you could have some states that say you have dense tissue and here are the things that you should do next or what you should take into consideration. Mm-hmm. And then there's some states that literally just give you a letter and, you know, it could be very vague and there's no direction or like follow up. It's really just, this is my requirement. Here's your letter. I'll see you next mm-hmm. year. Can you speak a little bit about, um, like, I just feel like talking about dense tissue in general is such a, I mean, we could talk for hours about it. I think it's, it's very complex. Yeah. And the more that I'm speaking with women who have been diagnosed and with radiologists and my own understanding and research, you know, I'm trying to make sense of all of the, the statistics out there and we advocate for early screening and early detection. And someone brought to my attention that, you know, the mammography in its traditional sense of just like, you know, the traditional mammogram is only as good as like a percentage of how dense your tissue is. Yes. And so I would love for you to like elaborate a little bit on that because while well, I said this right now to talk to you about it, it's very, uh-huh. it's, it's complex, right? To understand these ratios and, you know, you go in for your mammograms and Leslie, in your point, like a couple of months ago prior, you had clear mammograms. So,
1: you know, it's, it's unsettling. So, so let me yeah. see. I, I don't know if this is going to project for you, but let me actually do a little talk and uh, let me see if I can show you this. So basically, can you see this? I I took this from Wendy uh, Oh yes, yes. Mm-hmm. You know it's the it's Wendy Berg's uh, image, right? Basically, so you can see that the the one over here this is a fatty breast, okay, and you see how it's very dark, and this one is a dense breast, mm. okay. So the difference is the denser you are, the whiter the breast gets, right? Well, it turns out that breast cancer is white. Mm. Right. So if you're looking for something that's white in a background that's completely white, you can imagine that this is a very challenging task. Right. Whereas if something is basically dark and you're looking for something white, that's much easier. Right. So that's the first point. The other point is, if you think about this at the most basic level, right, your breast is basically made of fatty tissue and glandular tissue because it's an organ that makes milk. So there's going to be a portion of it that's fatty. And then there's a portion that makes the milk, the glandular tissue. Well, it turns out breast cancer is not going to, you're not going to get a fatty breast cancer, right? The fat's not going to convert into some kind of a tumor. Like it can, you know, there's like liposarcomas and things like that, but we were talking about breast cancer. So these are things that are really arising from the glandular elements. So if you have more glandular element you know you actually are going to have an increased risk because there's more of it mm. right that's really at the most basic level um that and this is really with that realization. I think this is when everybody said we have to have supplement. This just doing a mammogram alone is not sufficient. We must have supplemental screening. So it's not it's not a diagnostic test at that point. It's an added layer of screening. So people who have dense breast should have this added layer of screening. Um, and then in terms of detection of cancers, as the density increases, this is part of. Uh, the studies that Volpara has done, the Volpara people, mm-hmm. right? When they looked at it, they said that, you know, when the breast tissue is fatty or scattered fibroglandular, you know, the detection rate's pretty good. But somewhere in the middle of the heterogeneously dense group, right? So they're like greater than 50, less than 75% that area. It's when it's really in there somewhere that the, the in terms of the consistency of um, picking up small lesions really drops off because we just can't see it, Shame. you know, so in some ways you think about it, yes, it's a seeing eye test, but should it really be a seeing eye test? It shouldn't be, right? That's really not fair, you know, and that's really why MBI is so great. Um, I have a great story for you. So we had a woman who came in, she was seen outside. Um, she, her dermatologist saw her and they, she saw a lump and she said, oh, did you know you had this lump? She said, no, I I didn't notice I had this lump. What is this lump? So then they examined her and she had a lump in her armpit also. So they said, oh, that's really weird. You have a lump in your armpit. You have something like over here. So they wound up biopsying the lump in her armpit. And it came back metastatic cancer, probably breast. Well, she had just had her mammogram a few months ago, right? And she had fatty breasts. How about that? Wow. So... They Mm. said, okay, this is really crazy, right? They said, how could she have breast cancer? And she had mammograms for over five years beyond that, that the mammogram hadn't changed. They brought me the mammograms. I look at them, they were not changed. It's not like we missed anything. Nobody missed anything. There was nothing there pretty much. It had not changed. So a surgeon called me and said, oh, I saw you did a talk. Do you think that, you know, this MBI could help you because we have this metastatic breast cancer and a fatty breast and we have no idea where this is coming from? I said, you know, Sure, but said, maybe we'll try it. But she also said, oh, by the way, she goes, she had a PET scan that only was hot in the armpit, nothing in the breast showed up. So I said, oh, well, you know, we could still do it because the PET scan's a big body scan and this is really a targeted study for your breast. So sure enough, we do the study and there's a tiny little area that's hot. I mean, it's a little specky area that's hot on the MBI, but it happened to be in the breast that had the lymph node. Mm. Okay, so now we have to go back and look at the mammogram, go back and look at the mammogram, do a targeted ultrasound of the area. And the only thing that I can find is she has this small cluster of calcifications that hasn't changed in five years. Wow. You know, who, who biopsies things like that? You don't. So I said, well, you know what? I said, this is all I see here. Maybe we should biopsy this. And she said, absolutely. We biopsied. That was her primary. Wow. Primary. Yep. and it had already gone to her lymph node. So it's a tiny little cluster hard to believe right but that's where mbi you know not not only just for screening things but it really is a powerful adjunct to diagnosing it's a powerful tool that we can use to help us diagnose and to problem solve difficult cases um i think that's really my favorite way to use it you know so yeah it's almost like finding like the scavenger hunt backwards
0: right like yes, you see exactly. like the advanced stage and trying to figure mm-hmm. out its origin Yes. Um, I am definitely going to recommend you and MBI to um, a really good dear friend of mine who unfortunately also got diagnosed at stage four. Mm-hmm. And to this date, it has not been traced back to her breast. She um, ended up keeping her breast she didn't, because she was already metastatic. Okay. Um, I think with all of her screenings and mammography scans and cat scans, pet scans, et cetera, to date, from my understanding, is that there is just no, it's not in her breast. It's pretty much everywhere else in her body, unfortunately. And so that would be very interesting, I think, from...
1: That would actually be a really interesting case. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So she, she's still metastatic. Yes. But they don't have a primary on her. Correct. But it's breast, for sure. Yes. And
0: Leslie, that's why I was asking you some of those questions, too. Like, when they did the bone biopsy, because um, for this particular woman, too, it was very similar. They did a bone biopsy. Mm-hmm. And um, they didn't know what it was. They were like, well... And she was what type of news is that, right? You, right. you're yeah. worried. And then your doctors are like, well, we don't know. And you start to realize that medicine's not a perfect science. And then it's all these like investigative, you know, trying to find what is it. So, right. you know, I, I can empathize with that experience that you went through as well with, you know, is it one thing? Is it another thing? You do all these tests and you're just kind of waiting to try and yeah, get some it's, clarity. It's,
2: it's a harrowing experience, <laughs> um, you know, to have it that way. Um, but something that Dr. Ha alluded to um a couple of minutes ago i've I've had this thought for a while that it feels like to me really tough on the radiologist to have to have to find things in the in a, in a pictures that are just all cloudy like that that seems I mean, seems unfair to me almost to expect them to see something that's
1: not really seeable. That's, that's why I said it. I don't think that this should have to be a seeing eye test, you know, on many levels, but it is, you know what I'm saying? And from my point of view, this is my job. Okay. My job, my only job is to find breast cancer when I'm looking at these mammograms, when I'm looking at breast, my only job is to find breast cancer. Right. And um, if it means that I, you know, I'm whatever I need to do. So that's really why, like, I feel like I need to know what, what's your history. I need to know, you know, if I see that you have a very high risk, right. And I just don't see anything and I'm sure that, you know, I feel like you're going to get breast cancer at some point, you can bet your, you know, (laughs) but that I'm actually, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything that I need to do to make sure that it's not there when I look And that if it pops up between the time that I see you today and the next time that you come, that I'm gonna catch it at the earliest point. I mean, this is the best that we can do, but I have an extra toy that nobody else has. And you know, I use it. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And and it helps me, you know? So I think that when people see that it really is helpful, when we get this information out to people, um, when doctors see how helpful it is, when patients realize that there's something else that they can use. And they basically say, listen, I want this test. Um, I think that, you know, with education, I, we will get better.
2: Right. So my experience has been so far, um, because some people know about it, because I took this walk to raise mm-hmm. money for the, you know, for the density matter study at the Mayo Clinic, etc. And so they know my story, and they'll ask their doctor, um, what about this? molecular breast imaging test because i have dense breasts Mm -hmm. and usually the response is oh i've never heard of that correct Mm -hmm. so then what can the woman say you know like how how do we then move on from that
1: mm -hmm. okay so basically what one of the things that you could do is um there is a website that I think has a list of all of the centers that are currently have molecular breast imaging. Okay. All right. So you can look at that website and say, listen, in my state, um, I see that this is where it is and say, this is where I want to go. At our hospital, the patients can actually pay out of pocket Mm -hmm. if they want. And what we've done is we basically, bare bones, you know, as low as we can go, as, as low as I can get the administration to agree to. And that's what it is. That's what we charge. Okay. Um, I think that it's reasonable. It's a significantly less than getting an MRI. Um, most people can afford it. Um, I have other things that are available to me that if you are, really are somebody who needs it, who doesn't have it, I have grants that, you know, will cover you and things like that. So okay. that's how we do it here. Um, but I think that really it is, it, it, and it's terrible, but the onus is on the patient that if you know that you want this thing, you have to push, you know, and if if your doctor doesn't know about it, you know what, call them out on it and say, listen, I need you to research this and I want to get this done. I think the main thing is, you know, if you, if you push and say, listen, I would like to get this done. And if you don't have this available, I'm gonna take my things and I'm gonna go where they have it. Right. You know, it's really, it's always about hitting people in the pocket. You know, it's terrible, but I think that really does um, drive a lot of things. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, everybody likes doing MRI, right? Mm-hmm. An MRI on average, I think the Medicare reimbursement rate for an MRI is like over a thousand dollars. The MBI, I think, reimburses at about four hundred dollars. So if you're an institution, I think that you'd much rather do the thousand. I mean, this sounds terrible, and I, I, I don't know that this is true, but I, you know, you can kind of read between the lines, I guess. If you can get paid a thousand dollars for something as opposed to four hundred dollars, which one are you going to do? Sure. You know, and it's, and it's certainly, especially since the thousand dollar thing is the one that gets reimbursed you know right. all the insurance companies are agreeing to pay for that
2: yes
1: yeah. right the question
2: about that though is that not only, is, is that not just for the highest risk people the M- MRI? mri it is it is for the highest risk people okay. yeah so i think people, yeah, i like to well, use it sparingly yeah so i'll take myself as an example mm-hmm. i would i never qualified i would never have qualified for an mri correct you would have had to pay out of pocket high for that. enough risk mhm um, and, and isn't that true of over half of the breast cancers anyway? Is that,
1: yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, about 75% or something. Both? Yeah, mo- Most breast cancers, it's a, you know, you're the first one who has it. It's like, yes, if you have a family member for, or who has breast cancer, you are more at risk. Right. But by and large, most of the breast cancers that we detect are with no family history. Yeah. Right. Mm hmm. You know, and the I think the other really important thing that we kind of didn't discuss right now is we talked about your family history, We talked about that sheet that you have to fill out. We talked about your breast density. And I think that the next thing that I actually want to do that I think is very important is uh, genetic genomic testing right? I think that genomic testing is going to become a really important thing. And what I'd really love to see is that when you come in, that basically you are offered genomic testing, you know, you come for your mammo and part of the screening should be that you should be screened genomic, you know, your genes should be screened. And if you have like these variants, or if you have these genes, right? Well, hello, it's, you know, we need to put you in a different category, we need to be a little more, more aggressive with you as well. You're talking about BRCA, Yes, but BRCA is just you know one of the things. BRCA is the one that we all hear about, but there are so many others, and every day we're finding more and more things. I mean, there are they actually found that young women who develop breast cancer after pregnancy, right? There's actually a variant in the gene that you know they're finding that more and more common with that. So if you know that you have that, you know maybe you need to be a little more careful, you know, be very, um, yeah. If you have a kid, then you know you have that gene, then you really need to screen yourself carefully afterwards. Wow. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot out there. There is so much out there. Get There's so much there. information. It's really yeah. hard to keep up. Yeah. It is. Yeah. We just have to
2: get it out there and get it yeah. used yeah. by everybody in the population to yeah. really make a dent in, in what's going on. Right. right.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And I think this information, like I get goosebumps every time I have these podcasts and talk with amazing women like both of you, because you're always learning something new, and it takes time again and again and again to hear the same content. Um, what I'm so excited about, related, unrelated, but just to share, one of our um, one of our colleagues, I just did an interview with, on just this topic of genomic studies and the whole discussion around, you know, precision medicine and you know, genomic. Testing and trying to really figure out that mm-hmm. like specialized medicine or specialized screening, as we started off this conversation was we are very individual, and you know there's all of these factors that play into a potential outcome. So right. I think that just has to be stressed. I also want to stress to our listeners the importance that you've been stressing, Dr. Ha, of knowing your family history. I unfortunately fell in the ca- category of not knowing my family history, mainly because of it's not something my family talked about. It was very close to the vest. It wasn't something people bragged about. It wasn't something we knew, like, aunts and uncles. It was like, we're good. Everything's good. Mm -hmm. So when I moved to Boston and I had to find a new primary care, she's like, so what do you have in your family history? I'm like, I think I'm fine. Like, I don't know, maybe like high blood pressure, maybe, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't until post-diagnosis, my mom flies out from Chicago. We go meet with a genetics counselor, and oh my gosh, like, the little gene tree of like what everybody wow. had <laughs> was you know quite true, yeah. quite telling but I think I share this story because I didn't know how important that piece was in the puzzle um I did not test positive for any of the eight genes that I got screened for so mm-hmm. unfortunately unfortun- unfortunately there's no family connection in that regard um so I was like oh good that's great I don't carry the gene but wait it's sporadic and so like how did I get this um, sure. so it's just, I want to let people know too, like understanding that family health component can really make a difference, whether it's breast cancer or any sort of, you know, disease and illness.
1: Right. Right. Because there are other cancers that are associated with breast cancer. And again, I said, you know, the time that you had your first period, um, can affect your risk. Um, the age of your first pregnancy can affect your risk. Really? Are, yeah. Wow. Yeah, the lo- the longer, the more risk. Over over 30, if your first if your first child is over 30, <laughs> and I'm like in this day and age, who has a kid before 30? I certainly didn't. Yeah, I you know. Too, so. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, crazy, right? So we ask you that question, and people will get annoyed. <laughs> or not having children also increases your risk.
0: Well, that's me too. So wait, you either have children or you don't have children. There's a certain age with
1: yeah, did all these things oh all these gosh. things play a factor and you know it's like we really aren't trying to be nosy we're really trying to figure out what your risk is. Right.
0: right. And finding yeah. the patterns I changed those
1: the, I changed that questionnaire. It used to say breast history and now I I told them I said change this thing and I make it really bold and big and it says breast cancer risk assessment. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's so good. it's like heads up ladies it's like you know we're not being nosy. Right. And is is breast density part of that risk or is that a separate yeah, breast density is part of the risk okay. yes that's that's why i said you know when you come in i look to see what your density is i don't do it with my eyeballs i do it with the machine Vulpar is excellent all the studies on breast density or many of the studies have used that software in particular um some of the other companies are you know using different uh things but this that's the one they use i, I really like it um And I'm not saying that because, you know, I have no connection to them or anything like that. I just happen to think it's it's really a powerful tool.
0: Okay.
1: Great.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Another piece of information that I learned in my research was, you know, how we define risk. I would love to pick your brain and, you know, help our myself and our listeners understand, you know, what qualifies as high risk. I know we're talking about like potentially family history and all of this assessment that you're doing. Uh-huh. And I bring this up in the context of my own experience when I went for, you know, post treatment, post breast cancer annual screening, not a diagnostic, so that helped me understand, you know, the difference in that type of screening. I was going in for a just a regular screening. And then I'm in Massachusetts and they give me that letter that says I have breast uh, dense breast press, yeah. and I'm like okay great I got this letter I'm empowered I started on nonprofit. I'm running this podcast like I know what to ask next right and I'm so excited to say okay I want like whether it's the the ultrasound now, now I know to ask and investigate and learn about potentially the MBI and the person I was speaking with told me that I was not high risk and uh-huh. I was totally shocked to find out that someone with breast cancer is that high risk for recurrence? You're actually,
1: you are actually high risk. Oh, am I? Once, once you have a history of breast cancer. So there are certain things. So one of the things that I always look for is, you know, you have women who come in and they've had biopsies, mm. right? And I see, you know, they, they've had biopsies, right? And then I'll say, oh, this, you had a biopsy, but that looks like there's a little scar tissue there. It looks like there's a little distortion here. And I'll say like, did you ever have a surgical biopsy, like an excisional biopsy, not a lumpectomy, and excisional biopsy, right? And they say, yes, I had an excisional biopsy. It's not it's not cancer. Everything was fine. But then I'll go back and say, okay, so you actually had a needle biopsy. The needle biopsy must have shown something that said, hey, listen, you know what? It was either an introductal papilloma. It was a radial scar. Um, it could have been what we call um, ADH, atypical dyke hyperplasia, or atypical lobular hyperplasia, if it's one of those two of the latter, if it's one of the atypical, you know, lobular or ductal hyperplasia, that actually is a high-risk lesion, mm. okay? Introductal papillomas, you know, the jury's still thinking about, you know, we're still thinking, like, we're not really sure yet, but I will tell you that if you have an intraductal papilloma, most surgeons will take them out, okay. all right? Th- that, an intraductal papilloma is like, it's like a wart in your duct,
0: Mm-hmm. All
1: right. It's like a wart. It's, you know, papillomavir, right? And even though that in itself isn't cancer, it, we're not sure if it predisposes you to cancer or if it's going to be in areas that may have cancer. So that's why we take those out. Um, you know, so if I see that you had surgery after a biopsy, right, I always question you. And I'll say specifically, did you have a or atypical lobular hyperplasia. Because if you have either one of those things, you are put into the high-risk category right away, okay? The other thing is once you have breast cancer, right, and you have a diagnosis of breast cancer, the protocol that I use is I want to see you back every six months for the side that has the breast cancer, okay? And you're going to get a mammogram, and ultrasound and whatever else I need to do to figure out what's going on with that breast, okay? So you will have a, di- and you diagnostic for five years. You've diagnostic imaging for five years after that, from the time that we, di- you know, from the time that you have your surgery and that you're diagnosed. So you'll come, in six months, you'll come, I'll do the side that has the breast cancer, or had the breast cancer. You'll come in another six months, I'll do that side, and then we'll screen the other side. Six months later, we'll do the side with the breast cancer and this will go on for five years. Okay, once you're clear for five years, now you get thrown back into gen pop, right? You're back to the screening program, but you are no longer a regular screening for the rest of your life because you had that breast cancer. In my book, you were always a high risk screening. Okay, so you will be a high risk screening for me for eternity. So anytime you come and I know that you had that history, you're a high risk screening and you're going to get extra. But I mean, extra, not in terms of I'm not doing extra views on you, you know what I'm saying? But you're going to have extra layers of, so you're going to have supplemental screening, either in the form of mostly ultrasound or MBI. Yes.
0: No, that makes sense. And is that particular to you and your practice and your screening after a diagnostic? Um, It's
1: actually a recommendation that the, that's kind of like an ACR thing. I mean, that's really a recommendation. They say you should, you know, yeah.
0: That's really great to know. Again, another moment yeah. of empowerment. Yeah, a lot, um, and
1: many places do it that way.
2: I'm just curious um, why you think it is, is. I do a lot of reading on the internet and what all these organizations recommend for supplemental screening and under what conditions. And first of all, I know that they differ in their recommendations. And then um, they almost always just mention ultrasound or MRI. Um, and yet, there's this other modality that is out there that's been FDA approved for a long time. And I'm just, I'm, it it confuses me. And I was so surprised to learn about it really just by accident at the Mayo Clinic. I, like I said, we never had it. So I'm just curious about that. Um, Why do you think that is?
1: I think it's people are, nobody likes change. You know, people are comfortable with what they're comfortable with. Um, when you ask it's and it's really like part of it has to be that the radiologist who are doing the study has to say hey I need this thing you know but if the radiologist is saying like you know what I what I'm working with is enough I don't really need anything new then it's never going to be something that the hospital is going to be interested in purchasing you know a lot of the clinicians are depending on what the doctor who's looking at the study is saying, this is what I need to make a diagnosis. And if they tell you, you know, I'm doing the mammogram, I'm doing the ultrasound, it's good enough, then there's no information out there to say that there's something extra. So I guess the big portion of this is that we have to educate radiologists a little bit more to say, listen, this is, we're not saying that what you're, what you're doing is insufficient. You know, we're saying you're doing a good job. It's like we don't want people to think that oh my gosh, you know, you're not doing a good job. You're doing an excellent job. But hey, wouldn't it be so much better to have something to make you be, that you could do an extra. You could do something extra. Right. Right. You know, and I think that's really what it is. It's really all about education.
2: Okay. All right. And um how does that happen? Like how how do radiologists get educated on new things? How how does that work?
1: I think that's so what happens a lot of times is my experience has been, and what I've always advocated for is, you know what, the cases that nobody else wants to do, you know, that it really, it's just like, I don't know what to do with this case. It's like, let me do those cases for you, you know, and if I can prove to you that this is working, Mm -hmm. you know, prove it to you once, okay, prove it to you twice, prove it to you three times. And at that point, maybe you'll say, you know what, I think there's something to this. So it's it's a really slow procedure. It's a it's a slow process, but we just have to um, keep at it. Yeah. You know, there lots of things are like this. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, even in the course of my time as a radiologist, I remember there was a time when anybody who we thought we had they had a kidney stone, (laughs) believe it or not, we would inject them with IV contrast and do what was called an IVP. Nobody even knows what that is anymore because we don't do it. You get a CAT scan, you see the stone, and you're done. You know, but in order to get from that getting a ct it was insane my nephew had it as a kid had a renal stone and they said no it can't be a renal stone he's a kid and i said can you do the ct you know and they said no we're not going to do it finally they did it they found the stone you know but only because i was the radiologist and you know we insisted that this was done now this is what's done all the time you know so change is really difficult and change is slow right um
0: Okay. You hear that with breast cancer too, right? Like, oh, it can't be breast cancer, you're too young, or exactly. you, know, you don't have a family history. And like, well, you don't need a family right. history to have breast cancer. I mean, right. again, it's just one of those other factors for the risk factor.
2: Women's imaging review course at the Mayo Clinic is putting on in, I think it's December. December. And yes. they're having an MBI breakout session. So this is what we were just talking about, right? right. This mm-hmm. is how a radiologist, if they're if they're at this event, could learn more about this modality at this breakout session.
1: Everybody's so, fascinated by it when they hear the lectures. I, I hope that a lot of people go to this. Um, I'm certainly going to try to go there. I know it's a half day.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, so I'm going to try to sneak out of Dodge and get over there.
2: And you know, just tell all your radiologist friends
1: that mm-hmm. this is in Naples, Florida, yes. in December. I know as I a mean, matter the what? other, we have one of the women that I work with my other, you know, the other mama, she's actually going to be there. She's going. Okay, Great. Yeah. Great.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's, you know, one way that I know that uh, doctors have, you know, continuing education, uh-huh. not the word they use, I'm sure. Um, it but, is. Yeah. Okay. Right. CME, uh, continue medical
1: education. <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: All right, great. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: I do have a, a a question for you, just in in concise words. What is the recommendation that Laura? I'm I'm doing this really for your organization because everybody is a survivor or a thriver. So for the for your audience specifically, what would you recommend that they do in terms of screening for themselves, given the fact that they are survivors. What is the two sentence takeaway that they should take about their screening, given that they have had
1: breast cancer before? Five years out, you are a high risk screening. Okay. You're high risk screening. So mammogram, sonogram, MRI or MBI.
2: Okay. All right. And some of that differentiating between those
1: has to do with your density no if you're high risk i want to see you getting everything yeah, everything okay yeah. i want you know maybe you can forego the sonogram okay. because sometimes sono you know with a fatty breast sono is difficult um to find things you know okay believe it or not sono is not great for fatty breasts
0: hmm.
1: you know uh-huh. so i like to target so if you have fatty breasts and if you have a fatty breast instead of doing a ultrasound of the entire breast, I am much more likely to do a targeted ultrasound in any areas that may have areas of dense tissue, rather than to screen the whole thing like that, because it's really difficult. It's difficult. It's, okay. it's difficult, laborious for the techs. And, you know, you don't, again, like I said, it's not a seeing eye test for me. We also don't want to set a punishment for them that they're sitting there, you know, scanning through a triple D breast, that's all fatty, they, they're not going to find anything unless I tell them, listen, I need you to go five o'clock, you know, go f- about two okay. hands from the nipple and you're going to just scan that area like crazy.
2: Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. That's great to know. Cause I'm, I'm not sure that that's widely known. What do you think, Laura, that you are absolutely high risk after?
0: Mm. Yes. I mean, it's always in the back of our minds, right? And yeah. I it makes sense. It oh yes. it completely does. And yeah. I'm so glad you asked this question because, you know, I there's good days and bad days, I think, for us, right? Where, you know, we're we're grateful to be alive and we went through this vigorous treatment and we're here. And then there's some days where just even very recently I'm gonna be celebrating my three year survivorship, like in a couple of weeks. So from my date of diagnosis and you know, it's almost surreal that like I'm technically healthy. Like, you know, I, we feel like we've been sick and going through treatment for so long that it's it's hard to embrace kind of this new like, no, it's okay. You really do just have allergies. It's not a symptom of cancer. Like, take <laughs> some clarity and you're going to be fine. Uh, yeah. You know, or I had a tickle in my throat and I was like, oh my gosh, I think I need like a chest X ray. Like, something is just not right. And to your example, also, Doctor Ha, when you know you were talking, I'm sure everyone's situation is slightly different, of course, but. You know, if the breast cancer has traveled to one of the lymph nodes, um, I guess the terminology is a little confusing too, right? Like technically it has metastasized outside of like the the local breast area, it's right. been to the mm-hmm. lymph nodes, but it's not necessarily c- classified as stage four, if I'm mm-hmm. saying this correctly. And so what get, keeps me up at night is I'm going in for what's soon going to be my six months every six months for five years screening and but what if they don't find it in my breast? like sh- should we be advocating for CT scans or other type of screenings in the future mm-hmm. outside of just waiting for a symptom or something that right to show up to say don't no, I think I have bone pain in my femur or I think I'm having like severe headaches and then for them to just you know, all of a sudden, I I feel like we're just waiting to be diagnosed with a later stage.
1: I think that uh, some of the places, if they know that you have metastatic bone or you have metastatic disease, they will screen you. They'll screen you, I think, annually with the PET scan. Um, I don't, you know, that you could, so there are things that you can do. You can get a PET um, to make sure that there's nothing going on also. So that's, you know, that's another level of screening. Uh, One of the things I always tell my patients, and it's really getting a, diagnosis of breast cancer is can be de- is devastating right but you know once you have your lumpectomy once you go through your treatment and they come back for their six month I, I tell them I said listen I said so you had breast cancer right and what that means is now you're going to come and see me for every six months we're going to check you every six months think of it this way think of breast cancer as that's your disease okay I could have told you that day that you had diabetes mm. right And if you had said, I'm going to ignore it, I'm not going to check my diabetes, I'm not going to check my blood sugar, you know, your blood sugar could go off the chart, and you could wind up having to have like a toe cut off, you know, people wind up having amputated legs, you know. So if you think of it that way, those people have to check how many times a day do you have to check your disease at that point? Mm -hmm. Multiple times, right? With the breast cancer, yes, this is your disease, you know, you're going to check this and you're going to stay on top of it. My job is to make sure that you keep coming, and that if anything happens, that I'm gonna catch it for you. You know, but I can't do it alone. It's like we are a team. Yes. We're a team.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. I'm smiling over here. I'm like, all right, we yeah. got a team. We got like you're advocating on one end, we're advocating on the other end. We're coming together. We're, yes. we're taking care of ourselves together.
1: Yep. We're women. We're strong. <laughs> and I always tell them, I said, you could do this. I said, you know, you can do this. Women are strong.
2: Yeah, I agree with that.
0: If this podcast was helpful, be sure to subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a review so we know that you liked it. There are so many ways to join our community. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter at survivingbreastcancer.org. Follow us on Instagram, survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, and on YouTube at bit.ly forward slash YouTube SBC, and on Twitter, SBC underscore ORG. If you have a topic idea or would like to be a guest on our show, please contact me at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. We love hearing from you. Please remember that the content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in our podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our workplaces. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Thanks. Until next time, talk to you then.